Uh, you may want to keep a finger in Genesis um, for a minute. We'll, we're going to come back there in just a few minutes as we get into the story of Jacob. Uh, but I, I want to start this morning by talking about our weird family stories. Everybody's got some weird family stories, right? I mean, churches have them and families have them and um, there's sometimes stories that we're really proud of and sometimes stories that are important to our history and sometimes they're just weird. Right? Uh, and my, my family, actually my wife's family, has a, a really famous, fun, weird story about a waterbed. So my wife's uncle Dave uh, I don't know, this must have been three or four decades ago, um, got a waterbed. He was, he's a single guy living at home and wanted to do something fun, so he got himself a waterbed and uh, never had one before, set it up in his apartment complex and hooked the hose up, and it was taking forever to fill. And you know how that, if you ever had a waterbed, they're really slow. So he goes about and starts doing other things and puts things away and um, all kinds of stuff that he's got to get done in the house. And then he looks at the time and realizes uh, Dave's a swim coach. He's like, I've got swim practice. So he heads out to swim practice. Uh, yeah, you already know where this is going. Uh, and he comes back about an hour and a half later uh, and he walks into his apartment. And as he's walking up the stairs, he notices just a little rivulet of water dripping down the stairs in his apartment complex. And he thinks, that's odd. Why is there water dripping down the stairs? Uh, and he walks up onto his floor and he sees that that water has a source. Uh, and that, in fact, it's actually growing larger and larger as he gets closer to the source. And that source is his door. And under his door, there is a kind of a steady stream of water coming out. And he thinks for the first time, I wonder what happens if you don't turn the water off on a waterbed. <laughs> and then he opens the door. And in a tradition that would honor Noah himself, everything in his house floods out um, as he opens the door. There's a huge amount of water and, you know, like there go the dishes and there goes the newspapers and there's the dog floating by on the cushion of the sofa barking happily and uh, just totally washed out. So, uh, Obviously, there are enormous repercussions for exploding a waterbed in your apartment complex. Uh, and obviously, Dave didn't think this was super funny at the time. But a few months later, his family said, um, you know, Dave, that really is kind of amusing that happened to you. And he said, you know, it is amusing. And I wonder what it would have looked like. And so the family got another waterbed, like an old used waterbed. And they set it up outside this time, and they hooked a hose up to it just to see what would happen if they ran the waterbed till it exploded. They wanted to see what, what Dave missed. Uh, and uh, they, it was like an hour and a half, right? It just took forever, and it kept getting more and more full. And they kept saying, I can't believe it hasn't burst yet. I can't believe it hasn't burst yet. It's enormous. And finally, the family said, this is dumb. No one's ever going to believe we did this. Like, it's, it's huge. Before it bursts, let's quick get a picture in front of it. Ah. <laughs> uh. And so the whole family lines up in front of this waterbed, and as the photographer takes the picture, no kidding, the waterbed explodes, uh, and they are soaked and falling down and slipping and going down the hill, and um, just one of the great family moments of the Benz family of all time. Uh, that story has been told and retold and retold so many times. Uh, I've only been in the family for 20 years, and I've heard it I don't know, six, seven times at least. It's almost every couple of years somebody brings up the waterbed. And I got to be honest, and I, I don't know how to share this with them, but they're not here and hopefully not wish, watching online. 
Hi. Uh, it doesn't, it's not a story that makes Dave look great. Uh, and even the family comes off looking a little funny. And, and uh, there's something about these family stories. It's weird that we keep repeating them, right? They don't always make us look great, but we keep telling the stories. And, and I, I was thinking about that as I came to this weird, weird story in Genesis today. And I thought, why did Moses pick this story? Of all the things that he could have picked to tell the stories of our spiritual ancestors, um, why this part? I mean, I would leave this part out if I was introducing you to my family, right? Um, but, but Moses somehow thought not only was he going to include the story, I mean, it's a lot of content. Uh, and, and, and I want to suggest that um, these weird stories, especially this one we're reading today, have an incredibly important role in our family's history, just like our waterbed stories do in our personal families. I, I think the, these stories affect um, how we read Scripture, uh, and, and they help us to, to understand the Bible the way God wants it to be understood and understand our family the way God wants to understand our spiritual family. Um, these are not morality tales. These are not prescriptive instructions on how to follow God well. Clearly, they're not doing that. This is not a story where we are to find the details, oh, hey, here's one little good thing that Jacob did. I think the intent of this story and others like it in Genesis uh, is to make us recognize there are actually two competing stories being told at the same time, and both of them affect our understanding of our spiritual family. And in fact, I think this is in many ways one of the central themes of the whole Bible, that there's always two stories. There's always two stories. So, let's tell the first one. Let's talk about Jacob's story. Uh, Jacob's story uh, in this chapter is pretty disturbing. Uh, in fact, as we read this story, we've talked a lot about Jacob already and all of the uh, deceitful, dishonest things that he has done. Um, everything that happens in these chapters we read today feels like an outgrowth of Jacob's life and choices. Right? It, it feels like the people around him are acting like him, and the story is kind of revolving around him. For example, uh, Jacob falls in love with Rachel, and he wants to marry her, and he works seven years, and on the night of the wedding, uh, presumably, um, he gets really drunk. Um, because I don't know how you miss out on the fact that you're marrying the wrong woman, uh, but it's nighttime, and she's wearing a veil, and I think he's probably smashed, and... Laban tricks Jacob by, by bringing the wrong daughter. Boy, this sounds like a story that we've heard before. Uh, Laban tricks Jacob by disguising his oldest daughter as his youngest daughter, just like Jacob tricked his father right, by disguising himself as his older brother. Uh, and, and this um, mirroring of Jacob's deception uh, is, uh, I think, very intentionally designed for us to say, oh, yeah, the chickens are coming home to roost, Jacob. Yeah, you did all of that, and now it's coming back on you. Uh, and I think we're supposed to see the same thing in this uh, family conflict that develops. Right? You, you, you heard all of the back and forth between Rachel and Leah and Jacob. Um, just pause for a minute. Just think about 
Um, imagine that you are Jacob or Rachel, and for seven years uh, you have been engaged to be married, and on the night of your wedding, um, Rachel's older sister, Jacob's sister-in-law-to-be, um, takes your wife's place, and now you are um, married to her as much as you wanted to be married to her sister. Now, well, there's a lot of details we don't get. Uh, we're not told if this is a situation that exactly parallels the story of Jacob and Isaac. I mean, in, in the story of Jacob and Isaac and Esau, Jacob and his mother trick his father. Is it possible here that, that Laban and his daughter trick Jacob? Maybe. It's also possible that Leah has no choice in the matter. And we've had a lot of stories so far in Genesis where women are compelled by the male authority figures in their lives to do things they probably don't want to do. All we know is that now they're married, and then Rachel gets married too. And just imagine the dysfunction of every day sitting next to you at the kitchen table is the woman who snuck in and slept with your husband on your wedding night and is now your sister wife as well as your sister. Scripture talks about polygamy uh, uh, generally in a negative sense, and in fact, the only people that have been married to more than one wife so far that I can remember is Lamech. Lamech is in the line of Cain, and he's a very bad guy. And in fact, we're told in Leviticus 18 that it is particularly immoral to marry a woman and her sister. But here we are, and here Leah and Rachel are competing for the life and love of this one guy. Did you notice how broken their family has become? Uh, not only are, are Rachel and Leah in this conflict with each other, but they have drawn their children into it as well. Uh, if you've still got your Bible open, just look for a minute at the, the names of the children of Jacob. Look at the, the first children that are born. This is um, verse 32 of chapter 29. Uh, we're told that Leah conceives and bears a son, and she names him Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked on my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Um, one of the hard parts for us is that all of the, uh, these words relate to another word in the sentence, right? So, um, the word for to see in Hebrew is ra'ah, and Reuben's name sounds like ra'ah, looks like ra'ah. And so, she's saying, she names her son, look at me, right? Please look at me. That's what she names her son. Her next son is Simeon, uh, and Simeon sounds like the word to hear. And she says, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, He has given me this son also. And, and she says, hear me, right? Like, I want my husband to look at me and to hear me. Levi sounds like joined, right? And so she says, God has Levi'd um, me, and I want to be Levi'd to my husband. He'll be joined to me because I've borne him three sons. Like, just, just be connected to me. Just care about me and look at me and hear me. It's heartbreaking, right? Just listening the names of her kids is heartbreaking. And then we get Rachel, and Rachel says, you know, I'm so upset that I'm barren that I wish I was dead. I've got all the love, and my, my sister has all the children. And my sister wants your love, and I just want kids. And listen to the names of the kids of Rachel. Actually, the first kids of Rachel aren't Rachel's kids. Um, she does what Sarah did with Hagar. 
Um, she takes another woman and gives her to her husband. I mean, this just keeps getting more and more broken. Right now, the two wives have become three wives. Soon it'll be four. And we're not given the implication that Bilhah or Zilpah have any choice in the matter whatsoever. And, and the names of these kids, her first child through her maid Zilpah is named Dan. And Dan means judged. And she says, God has judged between me and my sister. I want judgment on my sister. And the next child is named Naphtali. It means wrestled. I have wrestled. I am fighting my sister. Can you imagine if your name was Judge, my aunt, and your brother's name was Wrestle with my aunt and her family? I mean, just the, the level of, of dysfunction here is unbelievable. And it just continues, right? The, the, the ongoing sorrow and sadness of this family that gets played out through the children, it feels like Jacob's story writ large. Right? Jacob who brought chaos and competition and, and tried to overpower his brother now sees his wives and his children engaged in that same process, holding on to, boy, we do this, don't we? Holding on to a grudge for years, unable to forgive, passing it on to generations to come. The other just area of incredible brokenness in Jacob's story is this objectification of people. Um, We've seen this theme throughout the book of Genesis, it's, I mean, this is like me too before me too happened, right? This is um, again and again the Bible saying, look at the horrible things that these men are doing to these women, treating them like objects. Here's, here's Jacob saying, hey, Laban, I'd like to buy your daughter. Hey, I, I get the history. I, I, I love history. I understand the, the significance of dowries and all of those things, right? But literally, I'd like to buy your daughter off of you. Uh, I remember one time I was in Kenya with some friends, and um, uh, there were a number of uh, young women there with us, and then uh, the, the senior pastor was there as well. And um, one of the uh, guys, the really relatively affluent guys in Kenya, um, uh, came up to our senior pastor, who he assumed was the father of these young women. And, and a very normal thing in many cultures, he said, hey, I'd like to propose a marriage with one of your daughters. Uh, you know, they're, they're beautiful, and they're obviously faithful, and there's so many great things about them. Um, how many head of cattle would you like for your daughter? <laughs> And Jim, his name was Jim. Jim was like, uh, I, it's not my daughter. <laughs> and, you know, we, we can't do that. Um, but, but that's, I mean, literally, what's the price for your daughter? Seven years? Great. Let's do it. And Laban treats his daughters as commodities, right? Oh, I can get seven more years of work out of you if I just sneak another daughter in. And Rachel and Leah treat their servants as objects, right? I'll just have kids through them. And, and this becomes so significant that by the end of the story, even Jacob is an object to be bought and sold. You notice? Uh, they bought him for the price of some aphrodisiacs, and they sold him between themselves as wives. Boy, this sounds familiar to me too. Uh, this sounds like so many of our stories where people become tools for our own advancement, where um, they become um, 
bodies for us to lust over or stories for us to gossip about or even sometimes um, notches on the belt of evangelism, right, so we can brag that we brought somebody else in, that, that so often, like Jacob, like Leah, we begin to see people as things, as wages, as endowments. I think Jacob's story is sad and broken and embarrassing, but also surprisingly normal. It's pretty normal. I mean, it seems extreme, but all the stuff that Jacob does, all the dishonesty and uh, the power dynamics and the um, objectification of others, that stuff that we see every day, um, it's the way of the serpent. It's contagious, and it's kind of our story. That's the first story. Uh, it's Jacob's story. Um, but it's not the main story. Uh, I have this, <laughs> I have this song that keeps running through my head as I've been thinking about this scripture, and I'm just going to play the very first part of it for you, and um, hopefully it'll make sense in a minute. Will you play that for me? love this song. Uh, and it's been running through my head over and over again. You're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. There's two stories in every story. The first one is Jacob's. The second one is Yahweh's. Yahweh shows up in this story, and we begin to realize this maybe isn't all about Jacob. Uh, Yahweh shows up in verse 31. You notice that when the Lord, when Yahweh saw that Leah was unloved, He opened her womb. He keeps showing up in the lives of her children. Leah says, because Yahweh has looked on my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. She says, because Yahweh has heard that I am hated, He has given me this son also. And then at the end, uh, we'll come back to this. She says, this time I will praise Yahweh. See, it seems like all the people in the story are acting like Jacob when we read this as though it's Jacob's story. Um, but it's not actually about Jacob. And when the main character shows up in our story, we see him as the giver of life and of children. He is the seer of the afflicted. He is the hearer of the hated. He is the lover of the unloved. And the question is, 
What if people in the story acted like Yahweh instead of like Jacob? God remembers Rachel at the end of the story. Uh, Rachel, whose pain is that she can't have children. Leah's pain is she is unloved. Rachel's pain is she can't have children. And we're told God remembered Rachel like He remembered Noah and their family on the ark in the middle of the flood, like He remembered His covenant with Abraham and Sarah. God remembered Rachel. And she says, He took away my reproach the pain of her barrenness. Uh, It is incredibly painful to be unable to have children, but in the ancient world, all the more so, where women didn't have careers and value uh, outside the home like they do in our society. And so, um, her whole world was about trying to have kids, and God remembers Rachel. He's the God who remembers the forgotten. He's the God who overcomes unlife with life. He's the God who takes away shame. What if someone else in this story acted like Yahweh instead of like Jacob? He's the God who notices slaves and women and the barren and the unloved, the afflicted and the hated, who works with the hurt and the hurtful. The only one in this whole story who has supreme power, who seems to keep focusing on exalting the most powerless. There are two stories in every story The first is our story. The second is God's. Uh, And if our story is normative and contagious, couldn't God's be as well? Couldn't it be possible that we could read the stories of Yahweh's life-giving love and grace and say, that's the kind of story I want to be in? See, I think we read the Bible wrongly because we read our lives wrongly. This isn't Jacob's story, it's Yahweh's. You probably think this story is about you, but it's not. It's not your story, it's Christ's story. You're not the hero, you're not the villain, you're not the protagonist, you're the supporting cast. There's a moment in this story where Leah gets it. I don't know if you noticed this. Uh, She only gets it for a minute, then she falls back into the pattern of trying to find her worth from her husband. But for a moment, when her fourth child is born, she names him Judah, which means praise Yahweh. And she says, this time I'll just praise the Lord. I'm done finding my worth in my husband. I'm done finding my worth in childbearing. I'm done thinking that one day He will love me or notice me, and that will change who I am. I am already loved and noticed and seen and heard by my God. Who's the hero of your story? Whose story are you living in and whose life are you emulating? Is it Jacob or Yahweh's? Is it Jim or is it Jesus? One of my favorite stories of Scripture comes in the second book of Samuel. It's the story of King David. King David, the greatest king of all Israel except for the current king. King David, who is this amazing military ruler and uh, the beginner of this great dynasty with whom God makes a sacred covenant. King David, at the high watermark of his, of his career, brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And when he does, he wants everyone to know that he is just a servant of a greater king. So he dresses like a servant, and he literally dances and jumps and leaps before the ark, before 
um, all the people as they're watching um, in just a regular linen smock. Um, it's kind of gross, but no underwear. He goes commando. I don't know why the Bible tells you that, but there it is. And as he is jumping and dancing before the ark in this linen smock, his daughter, the I'm sorry, his wife, the daughter of the previous king, old royalty, watches him. And he comes home and she says to him, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servant's maids as any vulgar fellow might shamelessly uncover himself. See, she thinks it's David's story. He's the king. She's part of his story. David says to her, it was before Yahweh who chose me in place of your father and all his household to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of Yahweh, that I danced before Yahweh. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be humbled in my own eyes. But by the maids of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. See, David recognizes that the story of which he wants to be a part is not his story. It has to do with the afflicted and the powerless and the servants. And so he has to be amongst them so he can be with his king. And when we can do that, when we can get out of our own story, we can get into Christ's story. Paul Tripp says it like this, I have taken an accounting, long needed, long overdue, humbling, convicting, heart-correcting, I had to admit that in many ways, subtly sometimes, boldly other times, I have taken personal credit for what I could not conceive, produce, achieve, or accomplish on my own. I have no independent successes, accomplishments, attainments, prizes, or positions. There is nothing I have done in my own strength. There is no ability I have employed that does not come from you." All the things around me that had to be in place for me to do what I have done exist under your sovereignty, not my own. All the people that have mentored me, assisted, advised, cooperated, employed, loved, guided, rescued, taught, supported, stood with me, stood against me, cared for me, protected me, worked with me, came into my life brought there by you. I have arrived at places that were not in my plan. I have done things I never envisioned to do. I have lived in situations that were not of my wise choosing. I have been regularly surprised by the turnings of my own story. I have not had the character, will, ambition, courage, patience, humility, discipline, or vision of a hero. As I have taken an accounting, this is the sum. There is only one hero in my story, only one who deserves credit, honor, celebration, esteem, and praise. Clearly, that hero is you. My successes are the result of your sovereignty, your generosity, your faithfulness, and your grace. You are the author, expediter, and completer of my story. There is nothing that I have done that could be done without you. There is no reason for me to boast. The account points me here. If I am to boast, I will boast in you." Let's give up on our story and get into God's. Thanks be to Him.